everyone! Welcome to another episode of Everybody Blurt. Each week we chat to a different expert, giving the professional lowdown on depression, well-being and support available. Think of this podcast as a helping hand through the often scary world of mental health, from eating well and getting good night's sleep to being there for someone who's struggling. We'll cover the practical stuff as well as the emotional, so settle down with a cuppa and let's get started. Welcome to episode two of the Everybody Blurts podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Kirsty Anderson, a leading sleep neurologist here in the UK. Hello, Dr. Anderson. Hello, nice to be with you. Nice to have you. Thank you ever so much. Um, Would you like to tell us a bit about your background? Uh, Yes, I'm one of the few consultant neurologists who specialise in sleep medicine. So we look at people with all kinds of sleep problems, too much, too little, things that go bump in the night, sleeping at the wrong time of day or night. And we have quite a big research interest here in Newcastle as well. So we're looking to try and understand the role that sleep disturbance plays in mental health problems and also how we can look at the best ways to record people's sleep and wake. Because actually bringing someone into the sleep lab can be quite invasive. So those are my particular interests. So we see lots of patients with bad sleep. I can imagine when you bring people into the sleep lab that it's somewhere they're not used to sleeping, so it can be quite difficult to monitor them there. It can be. I mean, we attach wires and beeps and buzzers. We tell them we're going to video them, and then we lie down and say, go to sleep, you know, and and actually that's quite difficult. So um, we have to take that lab environment into account, and we actually do a lot of recordings at home as well in people's own beds. Okay, you, met, you did touch on it a little bit there about the role that sleep plays in our mental health. Um, can you tell us a bit about why sleep is important and the role that it does play? Uh, sleep is absolutely vital for all brain function. So sleep is a biological necessity. We all sleep. And we also are designed to sleep at night. We don't really think about that particularly, but everything we have was made about 50,000 years ago and takes into the account that we rotate, that, you know, our planet rotates around the sun every 24 hours. So fundamentally, sleep protects the brain, and every aspect of brain function relies on normal sleep. So do lots of physical functions in your body as well. But I would say that sleep is of the brain, by the brain, and for the brain. Many famous neuroscientists have said that before me as well. Um, it's often said that one of the um, first symptoms of depression is a change in sleep habits. Either you, you, know, you might be struggling to fall asleep, stay asleep, or you might be feeling like that's all that you want to do. Um, why is it one of the first symptoms? That's a really important question. I mean, we know that there's a bi-directional relationship between sleep and mental health problems. So you can have acute sleep disturbance as part of depression, as part of anxiety, as part of psychosis. But importantly, if you have sleep disturbance for any reason, it's a risk factor for developing depression. So we know that if people have insomnia and you follow people with insomnia up over time, they're much more likely to develop problems like depression than people who sleep well. And we could reverse that and say that people who've recovered from a major bout of depression, one of their biggest risk factors for another bout of depression is ongoing insomnia. And and one final point is that a lot of sleep disorders can be hard to spot, hard to diagnose, and the symptoms of sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea can look very like depression. So there's quite a complicated relationship and it's really important to go into the type of sleep problems people are having and so we can try and help and try and also help, importantly, their mood. 
what can we do to improve the quality of our sleep? That's a really good question. So people think about the hours. They think about how many hours they spend in bed. And, and in fact, if you have insomnia, there tends to be a bit of an obsession on this mythical eight hours. I mean, the first thing to say is sleep's like everything else. It varies. You know, there's some people who are six foot three and there's some people who are five foot one. There's people who can sleep for six hours and wake refreshed and feel fine. And people who really need eight or nine, otherwise they feel horrible. The average in the population, the total amount of sleep time that we feel refreshed with is about seven and a half hours, but it's quite variable. But really importantly as well, we have to think about body clocks. We're mostly designed to fall asleep as the light intensity drops, as it gets dark, and to be at our most awake in bright sunlight. And, you know, we're designed, we're hardwired for light. And if you think about all the shift workers, if you think about all the light we have in our lives now, our ability as never before to manipulate light, actually that has a big effect on circadian rhythm or the body clock. And you've really got to think about aligning your hours and your clock. So enough time for you and waking feeling refreshed is still the biggest test of whether you slept well, but also thinking about when you're sleeping, what time of day and night you're getting into the bedroom. So based on that, would we expect to be sleeping perhaps more in the winter when there's less light and then less in the summer when there's more light? Really good question. Absolutely right. So if you look at Scandinavian countries in particular, there's much more sleep disruption in the summer with those long, persistent days. And you're right that in the summer, we're really all going to be waking a little earlier. Of course, the birds are up earlier as well. That doesn't help. Um, and we do sleep a little bit longer in the winter. But there's also a really interesting and very well-recognized seasonal bias to depression. So, in fact, those long winter nights do make us all feel a little blue. And if you think about how you feel when you just come out into a bright spring morning, you know, lots of physiology is tuned to light intensity, not just the sleep-wake cycle. And I guess, you're, well, I know from personal experience, you're more likely to want to go outside and have natural sunlight in the spring, summer months than you are in the winter months, which must play a bit of a part because you're so, in the winter, you kind of have artificial light on when it's quite dark, don't you? So that must affect our brains a little bit. No, it really does. And um, one question I often ask my patients is to guess how bright the light in the room is compared to the intensity of the light outside. Our eyes are brilliant at acting as cameras. So you forget that they often um, overcome a lower light intensity and still give us good pictures. But you think about a lux, one lux, one candle, of an artificial light, about 100 to 400. Even up here in the northeast, if you go out at midday, it's about 10,000 lux. Mediterranean midday, it's 100,000 lux. So the sheer intensity of the light that's hitting the back of our eyes has a very big effect on brain function, yes. I was also going to ask, um, I had a baby a year ago, and one of the things you know you recommended is to start having a bedtime routine, um, but I've noticed that I stopped, that was something I stopped doing as I grew older. Um, how much does having a bedtime routine help sort of to give our brain cues that it's time to go to sleep? Well, for day and for night, we all have cues that the brain follows. So light is one thing, but physical activity, when we eat, um, what we're doing in the day, who we're with, that all plays a part as well. But it's important to remember that your baby doesn't have quite the same clock as you. Um, he or she is set to wake a little earlier and certainly goes to bed a little earlier. 
and also that body clock and total sleep time changes over the course of your life. But it's absolutely right that routine and rhythm is really important for good sleep and, and good weight as well, definitely. I found that when I did start um, introducing a routine into my evening, actually that I fell asleep a lot quicker and easier um, and that the quality of sleep was a bit deeper because it was as if my brain was thinking, yes, it's bedtime now, rather than sort of being on the computer, being on the phone and then trying to go to sleep straight away. It really helped me to wind down. Absolutely. Um, and, and we know that not just light, but melatonin levels are really very sensitive to light and to dark. So melatonin you think of as your darkness hormone. It rises during the night and it stabilizes the sleep-wake cycle. And little ones throw out buckets of melatonin. Young people throw out a little less, and as you get a bit older, you, you don't make as much melatonin. So that's really the night-stabilizing hormone. And if you turn the lights on in the middle of the night, if you have your laptops on, that's enough to suppress your melatonin levels. So that's quite important. And you brought out the fact that by taking out a lot of your screens and probably decreasing your light, slowing down, body and brain you slept better and that's absolutely correct um, some people um really struggle with sleeping at night and so they tend they might have naps during the day or they, or they might find they're going to bed later getting up later how can you reset your body clock so that you're going to sleep more reasonable times of the day well again we go back to what age you are you're allowed to want to fall asleep a little later and wake a little later in your teenage years in fact that's normal Certainly as you're going through your final growth spurt, you tend to need about 30 to 60 minutes more sleep, and you tend to be a bit more comfortable falling asleep after midnight and waking eight or nine in the morning. Whereas as you get older, you, you tend to phase advance. You tend to want to fall asleep earlier. I suppose it goes back to where your body clock is set. Are you roughly 7-11 when you slept well, or are you naturally a night owl or a morning lark? And there's genetic variation. So we probably try and think about where you slept when you slept best, you know, what time you fell asleep most comfortably and woke most comfortably when you did that without an alarm clock. And then you need to explain to people that sleep is regulated by the brain, a bit like food um, and water intake are regulated. So there's a, there's a homeostat really for sleep. So if you nap early in the evening, then you're not going to want to fall asleep at the same time as normal. In fact, you're going to have to wait a little. Um, so, you know, early naps or naps just after lunch in, in hot weather or around siesta time may be very pleasant, but it's quite important then to allow for the fact you're not going to be tired as early in the evening. So, if you're keen to fall asleep to a regular schedule, then we tend to say fix the wake times, the time that's comfortable, keep that fairly constant, and it does sound very obvious to say, get into bed when you're really sleepy. You walk up the stairs wide awake, you're not that likely to fall asleep. Chasing sleep doesn't really work. I read a really nice line in a book recently, sleep is a bit like a cat. It doesn't come unless you ignore it. Um, some people have really vivid dreams that affect how they feel in the morning. You know, um, you can f they, can be they can be exhausting. You can feel like you've run a half marathon when you wake up in the morning, whilst other people don't remember dreams at all. Why is that? It's really interesting. So when people first started to study dream sleep, and they, they did it in children, in fact, in the 50s and 60s, when they discovered this stage, they studied that every person they looked at in their lab had four to five cycles of dream sleep. 
throughout the night. And, and in adulthood, that comes about every hour and a half. But we all know that very few of us remember four or five distinct dream cycles. So actually, we all dream for about 20 to 25% of the night. But there's huge variability in how much we remember. So you're much more likely to remember a dream in the second half of the night and close to morning. You're much more likely to remember a dream if you wake soon after the dream. So anything that disrupts night sleep tends to increase dream memory, but also this variation. So some people are vivid, lucid dreamers, go back in and out of dreams and have exceptional dream recall. And then there's other people tell me, I never dream. Well, I mean, you know, they do. We can see it in the, in the lab. But how much you remember is really variable. And it tends to respond to how you're feeling during the day. So people who are feeling unhappy and sad and anxious during the day are a bit more likely to have unpleasant dream content. So we all have occasional nightmares. But whether we have a lot of those, there's often daytime um, mood disorders can play a part in this as well. How much um, does whether you wind down before you go to bed affect the um, vividness of your dreams you know if you haven't had that kind of wind down time where you'll have quiet time um, and your mind might still be racing as you're trying to fall asleep how does that play a role a, a little not a huge amount I mean a racing mind plays a much bigger part in insomnia that difficulty falling asleep initially so definitely that doesn't help if, if you've got all of those things on your mind and I think we've all had the experience of watching a really violent film or something, you know, reading a Stephen King and, and, and you know, then having a very vivid dream. Um, but mostly we tend to dream the rather mysterious state um, and tend to reprocess lots of fragments of the day. Uh, we think we dream in real time. Um, when you study people, that seems to be the case. So it's not really the case that a wind down routine has a big effect on dream sleep more your ability to fall asleep in the first place okay that leads me on to the, um, some advice that you might give to people who fall asleep easily but struggle to stay asleep throughout the night uh, that's a good question i always want to ask them the question do you know what wakes you now of course not everybody does but some people can say well, you know, it, it's snoring. You know, sometimes it's theirs and they get <laughs> awake. Sometimes it's other people's. Some people are restless, not in their mind, but in their body. We are specifically about restless leg syndrome, really missed as a cause of sleep disturbance and quite treatable. Some people wake because they need to go to the loo. And, and as you get a bit older, you know, once might be fine, four or five times might not. And again, you might want to talk to your GP about that. And then some people wake and really have the feeling of being very frustrated about the awakening. And it's really that frustration that then drives adrenaline levels up and then make it you know, harder to return to sleep. Now, if that's the case, you want a trick to break that cycle. You either need a mind game to play or you need to take the agitation out of the bedroom. And sometimes just being up, out, doing something else, calm and relaxing in another room that's not the bedroom until you just feel that sleepy, gritty eyes, wanting to close your eyes again feeling, is better than lying awake and really cross and frustrated. What would be the optimum um, room, environment, you know, the environment for sleep? So it's really easy. Cool, dark and quiet is what we say. Um, I think there's probably
probably only applied to bad sleepers because we all remember student days when our whole life was in a single room and it didn't really seem to cause a problem. So we know that you're a bit more likely to wake as you get a little older. Certainly for women, when children come along, you know, there's an evolutionary trigger there. We're designed to wake to the cry. That's a safe thing. That's a nice thing. But it can be the start of sleep disturbance. So I think for bad sleepers, they do want to make sure that their daytime life is out of their bedroom. So a really cool bedroom, completely dark and, and quiet and soft wax earplugs, if there's outside noise, can help with that a little bit. And also, I was going to ask about caffeine. Um, some people feel really tired and wake up. The first thing they grab, grab is a coffee. Um, should there be a time that we should stop drinking caffeine throughout the day so that it doesn't affect our sleep in the evening? Yes, absolutely. And again, I think we look at people who are having trouble sleeping. And I always explain that caffeine stays in the system for longer than people think. So it has a half-life of four to six hours. So your body gets rid of half of it four or five hours later. Wow. Exactly. It's longer than people think. So if you're drinking steadily your two, three, four cups of coffee throughout the day, even if you stop that at three or four o'clock, your body certainly may have quite a lot of it left around 10, 11 o'clock. So I tend to get people to count the cups of coffee per day. Pete has a lot less caffeine and chocolate, thank goodness, has very little caffeine. So we don't <laughs> feel too bad about that. And, and the high street coffee is, is really very strong often compared to the coffee you make for yourself. I, I think the rules are very simple. I think if you're sleeping very badly, I would cut out caffeine. It's simple. Um, absolutes are slightly easier to follow than, than amounts. Um, but, you know, equally, if you drink coffee and you sleep perfectly well, then I wouldn't be changing that. So everyone's a bit different, really, aren't it's about, It sounds like it's very much about trying to find what works Definitely. for you. Definitely. Yeah, and I think that's the danger, isn't it, when you read information online or, you know, in books. It's quite a blanket advice for everybody. Um, and then you start comparing yourself with what should be the norm. <laughs> but, but the norm for you is different than it is for somebody else. Definitely. So one thing that people don't realise is nobody sleeps through. The idea that we have a solid block is just not correct. We have people in our sleep lab who say that they fell asleep at 11 and woke at 7, and we can see that they've woken four or five or six times, but very briefly, and they're either not bothered or not really aware of that. But, but everybody wakes a little during the night, and if you wake up feeling fine and you fell asleep within 20 or 30 minutes or so, and you do that most nights of the week, you have a pretty normal sleep pattern. That's fantastic. Thank you. I was, the last thing I was going to ask is what would be your top three tips for somebody who is really struggling with sleep? I think going back to the beginning and saying, what are you really bothered about? Do you have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, and then you feel fatigued during the day? Well, I would put that into an insomnia category. And I would go and talk to your GP. I would look at the NHS Choices website with some very sensible information. If the problem is different, if you cannot get through the day without falling asleep, without daytime napping, that's a different set of disorders, also with good treatment. And again, I really would go and talk to your GP if it isn't really obvious that you're just not getting enough hours in bed. You need to watch out for sleep restriction in modern society. That's all for this episode of Everybody Blurts. We hope you found it interesting, thought-provoking and maybe a bit useful too. We're here every week for open, honest discussions about mental health and we'd love you to join us again. 
make sure you subscribe via iTunes so you don't miss out. See you next time.